So what if you were responsible for scripting the son of God coming into the world? How would you do it? I mean, I mean, I would, first of all, I would make sure that the heavens were ablaze with, with light and that everyone on the face of the earth saw this bold light in the sky. And then I would start, send emissaries to all the major capitals of the world and I would tell them in nine months, two weeks, and three days, you need to arrive in Jerusalem. I'd pick Jerusalem because that's the major city in Israel. And they all have to arrive, these, 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 these nations, to, to Jerusalem to sell it. And then I would make sure that everyone knows about it on all of the televisions and radios and everyone. But that's not how God did it, did he? In his infinite wisdom, he chose a different way to bring. I would make it so that everyone on the face of the earth knew, but he chooses a young Jewish girl, a virgin. He chooses an obscure village town called Nazareth. I mean, not even an important person and not even an important city. What was God thinking? I mean, if you and I were scripting it, we certainly could have done it a whole lot better. Right. (laughs) But isn't it interesting how you and I would have scripted it and how God decided to script the coming of the Son of God into the world? In his infinite wisdom, he, he desired something completely different. Different than you and I would have done it. A mysterious conception. A virgin is with child. Never having sex. How do you explain that? Well, even to your parents, how do you explain that? But then you try to explain it to your village. And there are no satisfying answers if you're not going to believe her story. There's no satisfying answers. And since Mary and Joseph both had families, a lot of other people were in the impact area when this bomb blew up. I mean, a relationship terribly gone wrong, people would see. Who would believe a pregnant girl who claimed that she had never had sex with a man? I mean, apparently not even Joseph at first. He didn't even believe at first. It took a dream from an angel for him to believe that that was true what Mary had told him. But see, for Mary, and and this is a story we're familiar with, Luke chapter 1. We've read it lots of times. Every year we kind of read this section of Scripture. It's really important. But see, for Mary, being God's servant was more important than any negative circumstances that may surround this announcement. They were hard, and she had to deal with them. But she was more concerned with serving God and being his servant than all of the circumstances surrounding him. Those were not important. For if God could do what he says he's going to do, he certainly can take care of her in the midst of negative circumstances. She counted the cost and she sided with God. So here out of Luke chapter one, God graciously chooses Mary to bear the Messiah through the miracle of the virgin conception and birth. Now, hey, let's be honest. Would you have believed Mary? Come on, listen, we know this story. Oh yeah, I would have believed her. Right, come on. No, more likely you and I would have went, uh, yeah, right, we know how babies are made. Uh, yeah, and it takes a male and a female. And it, yeah, You cannot just do it without sex. That doesn't happen like that. We probably wouldn't even have believed her either. Now, tradition tells us that Luke, the person who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he actually sat down with Mary and interviewed her. So what we're reading right now are basically her description of what happened to her because no one else was present when this took place. 
So Luke sits down with Mary and hears directly from her what took place on this eventful day. So we're going to start reading in verse number 26 of the first chapter of book of Luke. So open up your Bibles, open up your, turn on your device, whichever the case is, and you can follow along with me as you go and you can see for yourself here. What I like about this whole thing is that in the end, Mary shows us the correct response for God's calling in one's life. So she gives us a clue. How do we respond to something that just seems out of the ordinary, something abnormal like this? How do you and I respond when God is calling us into some action or to something. So in verse number 26, we read this. In the sixth month, now the sixth month is the month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That takes place in the first part of chapter one. Elizabeth becomes pregnant in her own age. It's a miracle, but it became a, through natural creation, husband and wife. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, like this no-name town. I mean, people knew about it. In fact, at a reputation, Nazareth did. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Notice how a virgin comes often in the text. Of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So this angel appears to her and greets her, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What's going on here? Why is he even talking to me? And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. Notice that word favor pops up here again. That's actually the word grace. The root word is grace. You have found favor. You have found grace with God. It pops up a couple of times in the text here. So God is a God who loves to communicate. Now we have the creation that's communicating 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, talking about God's power and glory and his majesty in the creation. But we have a God who loves to communicate to us. I mean, we have his written word here. Over 2,000 years has been tried to be destroyed by kings and, and empires and they can't destroy this. God loves to communicate. And often he'll send an angel to give a message. And that's the case right here. And Gabriel, the message, the angel that came, is one that likes to reveal, actually he's probably given the task of revealing God's wishes to mankind. In the book of Daniel, Gabriel shows up here with a message of God. Daniel chapter 8. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Our God loves to communicate. He's not a hidden God that you have to say, where is God? Is it, our God loves to communicate. And he, and he chose Gabriel to take this message to Mary. And he went to Nazareth. Again, that's not my choice. My choice is Jerusalem. Really, Jerusalem, the center of the world. That's where God definitely is going to show up. But Nazareth? I mean, even Nathaniel, who later becomes a disciple, has a word to say about Nazareth. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it was known to be this backward little Hickville town, this redneck town where those people up in the north live up there, too close to the Gentiles for my preferences up there in the north. So Luke, he's emphasizing over and over again that Mary's a virgin. He's trying to get something across to us. Now, we're adults here. There are a couple of small children, but you get the point. A virgin means person has not had sex. So he emphasizes it over and over again. But now she's pregnant. How do you explain that? 
How do you explain that to Joseph? And how do you explain that to your, your parents? How do you explain that to the village who wants to probably stone you because it's against the law to have sex outside of marriage, especially if you're betrothed and you have sex, that's adultery. And that is punishable by being rocks thrown at you, stoned. How do you explain that? See, she was betrothed. And betrothed means a betrothal took place usually right after puberty. So Mary's probably 13 to 15 years of age. We kind of get in our mind that she's 20, maybe her early 30s when all this takes place. No, she is a young girl. Puberty has just taken place. The marriage has been arranged. There's a betrothal period. And there's a year waiting before the actual consummation of the marriage. And in between those two points, they're not allowed to have sex, even though they're considered husband and wife. Not allowed to have sex. A permanent relationship. So what's Joseph going to do? He finds out she's pregnant. Not from him. He knows it's not him. He knows. He doesn't know who it is, but he knows it's not him. What's he going to do? He loves Mary. The only thing he can possibly think about doing is, I have to divorce her, but I'm going to do it in a quiet manner so that she's not embarrassed and it doesn't bring shame to her. See, he loved her. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, again, remember they're in the betrothal period. They haven't consummated the marriage. They're still called husband and wife. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So in his mind, he's thinking, all of my plans for a family are now destroyed. But I love her and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make a spectacle out of her. I won't do it, he says. So, so Gabriel wants to give us some insight to who this coming one was. Who is this one born of a virgin? Who is this one? Well, we know that Joseph is David's son, a descendant of King David, which means that by adoption, Joseph adopting Jesus into his family, Jesus then becomes also in the line of David. Actually, it's through the line of David through mother, his mother as well. So who is this one that's coming? I find it interesting that God says often here, that Mary was favored, that God smiled on her, showed his face to her, that he was happy with her, that he favored her, that had grace with her. Over and over again, he kept using that word. And grace, to be the recipient of grace, grace means unmerited favor. It wasn't that he looked around, God didn't said, well, let's see, I need a descendant of David. And you know, that Mary lady, she's really pious and she's, oh, extraordinary spiritual person. I'm going to choose her. That's not what he did. He didn't look around for the best person. And no, he didn't look for the person who was special and chose them. No, he chose them and made them special. It's exactly what he did. He showed his favor, his grace upon Mary. She didn't, just like none of us, we never, we don't deserve his grace. It's unmerited favor. Yet he looks down and he shines his face on this young Jewish girl who is a virgin that her world is turned upside down. The word is used, this favored, is used one other time in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter one, talking about believers being favored by God or graced by God. It's Ephesians one chapter, uh, verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed, that's the word, favored us in the beloved. God has shown his grace upon us in the beloved, in his son, Jesus Christ. J.D. Greer wrote, what do we mean when we talk about the favor of God? The house you've always wanted goes into foreclosure and you buy it for a steal. Your kids bring the report cards home and you get, it's all straight A's. You find out that a long lost relative left you a tidy sum of money. 
Now, many people may think that's exactly what God's favor means. When life seems to break your way, it's easy to think, oh, God is really smiling on me. He must really love me. But when we turn to the New Testament, we get a splash of cold water. The favor of God doesn't always line up with great circumstances. As a matter of case in point is Mary. When the angel Gabriel shows up to announce the first Christmas to Mary in Luke 1, he tells her twice that she, is, she has God's favor. But her situation sure doesn't look like it. Gabriel has just told her she's going to be a pregnant woman out of wedlock in a culture where it isn't just only frowned upon, you can actually be punished by death in that culture. That's not good circumstances. And the man she loves, Joseph, is probably not going to understand the situation or believe her bizarre explanation, and he might leave her. She's already poor, and if Joseph rejects her, she'll be destitute. She may have to beg for a living after her parents die. None of that mattered to Mary. To Mary, to have the favor of God resting upon her, all of those negative circumstances didn't mean a thing when God's face shines on you. When God's face shines on you, you can go through extraordinary things because God's favor is upon you. That's where she finds herself. She had a desire to please God with who she was and everything about her. And, and I thought about that. You know, when I get up in the morning, is that really my first thought is, you know, whatever happens today, I have a desire to please the Heavenly Father in my actions. To, to, to please Him with who I am and what I say and what I do. Is our desire to please the Father our, our stuff that drives us to actions? For her, God's favor outweighed all negative circumstances in life. It didn't matter what was around her. If God's face is shining on her, life is good. She'd been graced by God to bear his son. Martin Luther comments, Mary confesses that the foremost work God did for her was that he regarded her. That's it, that he shined his face on her, that he had favor on her, with, which is indeed the greatest of his works on which all the rest depend and from which they all derive. From where it comes to pass that God turns his face toward one to regard him, there is nothing but grace and salvation and all gifts and works must follow. God shines his face on us. There's nothing but grace and salvation. We are saved by his grace. We grow in our faith by his grace. He shines his face upon us. So she wasn't chosen because she was something special. She was chosen and made special by God. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the ones of John the Baptist's parents, they're old. Their life is almost over with. But Mary and Joseph, they're young and their life is just beginning. So what God does in the world has nothing to do with our age, has nothing to do with the hometown that we come out of. I mean, Medical Lake is a small little town. Only people know about Medical Lake know about the uh, institution up on the hill. That's all that. In fact, when we moved here, we were told, Medical Lake, that's where the insane asylum is. That's all that I knew about Medical Lake when we came here. It doesn't matter your age or your hometown. When God shines his face upon you, when he shows you his grace, it changes everything. You probably feel, oh, I'm too old to serve God, or I don't come from the right pedigree to serve God, or I haven't been trained in theology to serve God. I, I can't possibly do that. How could God notice me? I'm just too insignificant. Has he, faced, has he shined his face on you? Are you saved by his grace? Are you part of the beloved? Has he blessed you in the beloved? You are not too insignificant for God to use. Doesn't matter what town you come from. 
You're never too old to serve God. Oh, I'm too old. I can't do anything. Can you pray? May not be able to build a structure in the back of the church, but can you pray? We're not all, we're never too old to serve. And I know that God uses imperfect people, imperfect people who are available to him to be used. So the question is for us today is, are you available to be used? I already know you're imperfect because we're all imperfect. I mean, so it doesn't matter. We're all imperfect. But the question is, are you available to be used today? Even though we're imperfect, God chooses to use the imperfect. He smiles his face upon us. He blesses us. He makes us special. So God's power was upon Mary, but he greets her with this greeting as, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you, which is a weird greeting. It's very similar to Gideon. You remember Gideon in the Old Testament? Gideon got a very similar greeting because he's about ready to embark on a, on a mission that he needs God's help to accomplish. Without God's help, he'll never be able to accomplish it. So he, in fact, it's recorded in Judges chapter 6. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Very similar to what he said to Mary. Why? Because Mary needed God's help to be able to get through this whole thing. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. So he need, she needs God's help. So this, this statement is very similar to what was told to Gideon. So now Luke moves on to talk more about this one that's going to be conceived in her womb. And he lists Jesus by five things he talks about. Look at verses 31 down to verse 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now I can imagine her thinking, but I, I, how? And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this is a very important person being described right here. The son. And in verse 31, we see an allusion to Isaiah's prophecy that was talked about in Isaiah chapter 7. There's an allusion to the virgin conceiving and bearing a son in Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's alluded to here in verse number 31. And any reader who understood Isaiah's prophecy would say, oh, I see the connection. I see that. So in contrast to the rest of humanity, this son is going to be great the son of the highest. John was only the prophet of the most high God. Jesus is the son of the most high God. John the Baptist, he was the messenger. Jesus was the message. He's far superior. He is the long awaited Messiah, the anointed one who brings salvation to all who believe to fix what was broken you know, a lot of people ask me, why did God have to become a man? Why couldn't he just been a spirit form and, and work salvation for us? Because Adam's race was broken. Someone from Adam's race had to fix it. And since you and I are imperfect, we could not have fixed it. We needed a perfect representative of humanity to fix our problem. That's why the son came. God became a human to deal with human sin. The only way it could be dealt with. Angels couldn't have done it. And we couldn't do it for each other because we're imperfect. So the perfect son of God to become the sacrifice for sin was needed and God prepares Mary for that. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, for if because of one man's trespass, which would be Adam, death reigned through that one man. So Adam broke everything in the garden and now death has entered into the human race. 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what Adam broke, Jesus is going to fix. He's going to restore what was lost in the garden to us. Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, that's because they came through him, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, because they couldn't have done it either, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus came to fix what was broken. But we had to have that perfect human who could come into the human race to live the sinless life, to become our representative, our substitution. So he would die in our place. This is the one who the prophets spoke about. In Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. And God always keeps his promises. We talked about that earlier when we were reading the Advent. God always keeps his promises. He made a promise to King David that one from his descendants would sit on a throne and his kingdom would last forever, would never end. It's recorded the promise in 2 Samuel. Here's a promise God made, and he's keeping it in Jesus. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God's talking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God keeps his promises. He promised that he would send one and he's keeping his promise now to establish a kingdom that will never end, can never be destroyed. So the Messiah is the final Davidic king and his kingdom has no end. Do you know when you enter by faith, being born again into the kingdom of God, you enter into a kingdom that will never end. It will never be destroyed. It never has an ending point. Say, okay, here it stops. You enter into a forever kingdom and that forever kingdom will eventually come to the earth at the second coming of Jesus Christ as he establishes his throne sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. Daniel 7, this final Davidic king whose kingdom has no end. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed forever. Are you in his kingdom today? Have you believed by, have you been born again into the kingdom of God? You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, Jesus said to us. Have you entered into this eternal kingdom that has no end? Because the king is forever alive. Daniel chapter 2, and in, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring, to, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's the kingdom that the Messiah establishes. So Mary now is just perplexed, like, what is going on here? I don't get it. So she asks a question. Look at verses 34 is the question. 35 is the answer. 
34 is the question. And Mary said to the angel, to Gabriel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Again, she mentions a virgin comes up again. How can this be? I have never had a sex. I've never had sex with a man before. How can this possibly be? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, one set aside for a divine purpose, the Son of God. Oh, yes. So Mary's question, how can this be, was not a question in unbelief. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, God, how can this be? My, my tone, okay? It, it was more informational. It was like, okay, I mean, I know how children are created. I'm, I mean, I've been around enough, and I, I understand that, says Mary. But how can this be when I've never had sex? So it wasn't a question like, oh, yeah, right, God, you can't do this. It was like, I don't understand how you're going to do this. I think you're going to, I know you're going to do it, but I don't know how you're going to. So it's an informational question. You know, when we're perplexed like Mary, the question we do not ask is, God, can you do it? That's not the question we ask. The question we ask is, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe that you're going to do it. Do you see the difference? One is in unbelief where, oh, yeah, how can you do that, God? And the other is, hey, listen, I know you're going to do it. I just don't understand how you're going to do it. So give me some information how you're going to do this because I don't understand it. That's all that he's really, that's all she's really asking is how is this going to happen? And in her mind, she has to be thinking about an immediate conception. Because if you think about it, remember, Joseph and her are betrothed. Betrothal takes place one year in between then the consummation of the marriage. I don't know where they're at in the betrothal period. They're within the one year. So all she has to do is wait a few months. The marriage will take place. And then the baby will be born naturally by procreation through a husband and wife. But she gets in her mind and she understands it rightly. No, no, no. This is an immediate conception. This is not after we consummate the marriage. This is right now before we consummate the marriage. So even though Joseph and Mary uh, were betrothed, they never had sex. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, we get this information. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Again, they're still in the betrothal period. Husband and wife are being named here. He took his wife, but knew her not, which is a euphemism for he did not have sex with her. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The whole time of the pregnancy, he never had sex with her until after Jesus was born. This miracle that took place in Mary's womb was far superior to the miracle that took place with John the Baptist. Elizabeth was old. She couldn't have a child. She's past the bearing of age. Zachariah and Elizabeth conceive. In other words, they come together, husband and wife, procreation. Comes John the Baptist. Here, this one There is no husband and wife. There is no male part. God overshadows her. This birth is far superior. Greater miracle. R.C. Sproul wrote, this child was not to be born by the normal biological process. He would go through the process of birth, being carried for a full term of pregnancy, yet he was to differ from all humanity in that he did not have a human father. His conception occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a miracle in the strictest sense of all. It was an act that only God could bring to pass. God alone can bring something out of nothing, life out of death, fertility from a barren womb, a virgin birth. So the perfect human could be born into this world who could pay the penalty for all of us humans who believe because not only is he a human, he is also God in flesh. 
Jaya Packer wrote in Knowing God, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. How do you bring the Savior into the world? You bring him in through a virgin birth, not tainted by original sin. So the Spirit overshadows Mary's womb. It's interesting, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, so it's an Old Testament passage, but in Greek, the same word overshadow is used in the tent and in the tabernacle when talking about the holy of holies where God's presence was. So Exodus 40, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled, overshadowed the tabernacle. Couldn't go into it. God's presence was in the tabernacle. That's the idea. God's presence is there. When he overshadows, it, it, it's, it's, think about it like this. He overshadowed the holies of holies in the tent and in, in, in the temple. Mary's womb becomes the holy of holies that God overshadows, where the presence of God is at. Where God, when he made man, when he made Adam out of the dust of the ground, he formed him together and he made him exactly like he wanted to. And then the text tells us that he breathed ruach to his nostrils. And the man became a living soul here in Mary's womb, that egg that wasn't fertilized by a male human being, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. God takes that egg and he goes, be alive, live overshadows her womb and creates something that has never ever happened in the history of humanity and never to happen again. In his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, Henry Skogel said, God hath long contended with a stubborn world and thrown down many a blessing upon them. And when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself. He came to us in our greatest need and worked a miracle that needed to be worked so you and I could come to him and fix everything that Adam broke. This overshadowed is also used on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when they go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and they go into a cloud? Here it's in Luke chapter 9. And he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. That's the same word. In other words, the presence of God was there. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So both the how, the virgin birth, and the what, the Messiah of Christmas is important. Can't have one without the other. Can't have a Messiah without a virgin birth. For the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ was necessary because of his deity and his preexistence. He already existed for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. And now this person who has always been enters into the human race through this virgin birth. In Micah 5, 2, we read this. But you, O Bethlehem, Aphrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, God is speaking, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth. In other words, his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. It has the idea of from eternity. This one who was coming into the world has been around for eternity. God the Son. And Mary's conception of Christ was, uh, was the incarnation of an already existing person. You could say it like that. Or you could say it like this. 
in our greatest need, God came to us and God is here with us. That's the message we need to hear. God came to us and God is here with us. For even the apostle John declares that Jesus was God's son before creation. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. An already existing person now comes into the world. God is enfleshed. That's where we get our word incarnation. He was enfleshed. He took on human flesh and he was holy. God set apart his son for a divine purpose, a divine task. And that was your salvation and mine. That we could be saved. That he could fix what Adam broke. Martin Luther once remarked that the incarnation consists of three miracles. The first, that God became a man. The second, that a virgin was a mother. And the third, that the heart of man should believe this. Let me ask you, do you believe it this morning? Do you believe that God chose to bring into the world his son through the virgin so that through him, through the son, all who, all who believe will have life in his name? Do you believe that? Are you saved today? Do you know him? Have you been born again into the kingdom of God? Do you know him today? What a great opportunity in this time when we remember his first coming to say, I invite him into my heart today. I believe, I trust him. My heart reaches out to him and I believe him. I believe in my heart is what Paul says in the Romans. Christian Ditchfield in a recent issue of Focus on the Family writes, basically Mary took the news in stride. This news, she didn't demand a sign some sort of proof or additional confirmation. She voiced no complaint at the total disruption of her life. She knew now that things would not turn out the way she had planned at all. Could you imagine as a little girl playing, thinking about her family and all the stuff she was going to do when she grew up and got married? All that changed. She concludes, but in her heart, there was no resistance, no rebellion, just a sweet, simple submission, a surrender to the will of God. I am your servant, God, whatever you want. I don't understand it. I'm not quite sure how it's all going to work. I don't even know how it's all going to end. But I I trust you. Can we, can you and me, can, can we, could we submit to the will of God even when we don't know the outcome of it? Far too many times you and I are afraid because we want all the answers before we say yes to the will of God in our lives. We think we have to have all of the steps going along the way. Frankly, if he told you all the steps, it would probably terrify you. I'm glad he doesn't tell us everything. But the question is, can we submit to the will of God even when we don't know the outcome? We can only do that is if we trust him and believe he has our best interests in mind. Well, let me ask you, what is it that God is wanting you to do? He is willing you to do. He is desiring you to do, but you're afraid to do because you don't know the outcome. What is it? And isn't today the day to let that go. And like Mary say, I'm your servant, whatever you want. God, I don't get it. I don't know how it's going to work and I don't know how it's going to end, but I trust you just like Mary. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It's not a, it's not a, we know this story, Father. It's very familiar to us. We've heard it over and over again, but to step back and think what it would have been like through her eyes to think, what was she thinking? What could have been the outcome how would society treat her? All the gossip that they're saying about her. Here's this Mary. She says she didn't have sex, but she's pregnant. All of the, how, we see how she responded. She believed you. She trusted you that you, that you had her best interests in mind. 
and she submitted to your will, not knowing the outcome. Thank you. What a great response to your will in our lives. May we learn from her. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.